Welcome to the Majlis, podcast of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. You can find the Majlis on your favorite podcast site, including Spotify and Apple iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think by giving us a rating. Salam, hello, bonjour, welcome to the Majlis. I'm your host, Adnan Hussein, director of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. And I'm really delighted today to be joined by my co-host, Aziza Kanji. Aziza is a legal academic and writer and commentator in Toronto. Aziza, how are you? I'm well, thanks, alhamdulillah, Adnan, and very happy to be uh, co-hosting this episode with you. Well, it's terrific because last time uh, you were on the Mudgeless, it was an episode where we were having a discussion of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and the politics of Ontario Bill 168. And you were a very incisive panelist in that discussion. And as our audience will remember, that bill proposed to adopt the IHRA definition and its accompanying illustrative examples into the human rights code in the province. So listeners uh, and our audience might be interested uh, as well that we will be holding a panel following up further on uh, the IH, IHRA definition and the constraints that it places on teaching and researching, particularly in Middle East studies with several scholars of the contemporary Middle East. Uh, so that'll be taking place Tuesday, March 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and we'll stream it live on our Facebook site, facebook.com slash msgpqu, and on our msgpqu YouTube channel afterwards, and possibly excerpts on the much list. So look out for that, and you'll be able to follow it. But speaking of academic freedom and government suppression of important and relevant research and teaching, today we're discussing a recent announcement made by the Macron government in France of an investigation into Islamo-leftism and social theories that are alleged to corrupt society. Aziza, can you tell us about what's been happening recently in France? Sure, Adnan. And yes, as you said, it's unfortunate that there's always just a steady slew of new exercises of state repression to bring us together. Inshallah, one day we'll all be together to actually discuss uh, liberation. But for the for the meantime, today we are discussing uh, this latest furor that has erupted over the last week uh, about the announcement of France's Minister of Higher Education that they would be launching an inquiry into supposed Islamo-leftism in universities. Uh, this term Islamo-leftism uh, emerged originally from right-wing actors in France, but it's steadily been taken up by different people in the Macron government, most recently with this announcement uh, by the fr uh, French higher education minister, uh, Frédéric Vidal. And of course, this is just one more element in a context of pervasive and consistent state-sponsored Islamophobia uh, from the recent bill on quote-unquote Islamic separatism uh, that was passed imposing draconian measures on Muslim spaces and communities. Uh, the progressive institutionalization and incorporation of originally exceptional counterterrorism measures into the body of now normal law that is applied to Muslims, the proliferation of repressions uh, of free expression against Muslims, paradoxically in the name of preserving the freedom to express criticisms of Islam, the shielding of police brutality, the consistent 
stream of uh, hostile comments towards Islam by political actors, including Macron himself, who has referred to Islam as a religion in crisis and talked about Muslim hydras. Um, and then, of course, there's the broader context of the failure um, to not only deal with and acknowledge but offer compensation for or redress for France's colonial history and present against the very same communities that are now being targeted by these Islamophobic measures. This is just the tip of the Islamophobia iceberg and we are so delighted to have our panel with us here today to uh, delve into the current controversy as well as the broader structural dynamics that lie behind it. And so I'll turn it back over to you, Adnan, to uh, introduce our panelists. Absolutely. We're very uh, delighted to have um, an esteemed panel of guests uh, today to investigate this uh, iceberg of Islamophobia and uh, delve the depths. Uh, first, we have uh, Hatim Bazian, who is uh, executive director of the Islamophobia Documentation and Research Project at UC Berkeley, where he is also a teaching professor in both the Near Eastern Studies and Asian American Studies departments. Hatim, it's wonderful to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to be with you, Adnan and uh, Aziza. It's good to see, to see you and also good to see Hamza with us as well. In indeed. Uh, also joining us is... Um, Hamza es Esmili, who's a doctoral candidate in anthropology and sociology at the Maurice Halbwach Center of the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris. It's a pleasure to meet you, Hamza, and welcome to the Majlis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you tonight. Wonderful. Well, I think perhaps we'll start with you, Hamza. Uh, we've heard about this term, Islamo-leftism, which is, seems to be a new and curious term. It reminds me a little bit of a term from a decade or two ago, uh, Islamo-fascism, that seems now to be a little less in use, perhaps partly because with the rearing and emergence in a more obvious way of actual fascists connected with that tradition of far-right politics, it seems less easy to invoke that term. And we now have this term. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this term and its resonance in France. What does it really mean and why is it being used? How is it being used? <clears throat> Well, thank you very much. Um, as a matter of fact, I haven't been thinking about uh, the uh, connection with the, the Islamofascism term, which was, as you say, this, this was uh, maybe uh, more ancient than the Islamoleftism. But there is, a, I think, a reason is that um, uh, Islamofascism uh, was uh, um, directed to actual Muslims. Islamo-leftism is not directed towards Muslims, it's directed towards people who are not um, enough aggressive towards Muslims. It means, uh, um, so you have, uh, I guess, um, a very uh, um, uh, political science definition, which was brought by uh, someone whose name is uh, Tagiev, which was the first uh, scholar of racism, and but then turned to be uh, himself very uh, right-wing leaning scholar and um, who was saying in the early uh, beginning of the uh, maybe 2003 I think who was saying that there was some kind of left European left who which was uh, um, accommodating with Muslims which was too much of uh, had some kind of uh, I don't know fascination for Muslims and uh, and the idea there is what is that since the uh, fall of the uh, uh, Berlin Wall, the left has no proletaria, has no proletarian classes to speak with, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and the Muslims 
kind of would be the replacements of these uh, uh, workers that no longer existed, as uh, uh, Tagev puts it. Um, yet now, in the last few weeks, few months, the term has changed. It has no, of course, not no scientific definition yet. It means that, uh, um, uh, let me put it this way, um, an Islamolefist is someone who refuses to um, denounce the uh, Muslim plot against France. Mm. If you refuse to say that there is a Muslim plot against France, then you are Islamo-leftist. So as you can see, um, it's, uh, it touches a lot of people. Thank you, Hamza. Uh, you mentioned um, Tagiev's uh, origination of this definition of Islamo-leftism. And of course, we know in that context, uh, it was in a book uh, he wrote called The New Judeophobia, and it was very much linked to this discourse we have now about the new anti-Semitism, uh, how the threat of new anti-Semitism is really emerging from people who are critical of Israel. And so we see a convergence of the politics of uh, suppression of solidarity with Palestine uh, with this new Islamo-leftist targeting um, Hatem, can you talk a bit about uh, the connections between these attacks on the left and the suppression of Palestine solidarity in the context that you're in as well as internationally? Yeah, uh, first, thanks for uh, having me. I do think that in discussing this whole conflation between the, uh, the Muslim communities and relations with the left should be dated to post-1967 war and the early 1970s where there were writings about the new anti-Semitism uh, as it compared to the earlier anti-Semitism of the uh, fascists, of the Nazis, of the right wing in Europe, all right? So post 67, the discussion was the new anti-Semitism is the alliance supposedly that had been struck by the pro-Palestine, uh, PLO, Muslim, Arab nationalists, and the political left, both in the United States and Europe. So from that, we begin to see this writing that problematizes the left, especially as it takes on the question of Palestine in a transnational context, and uh, in essence, begin to try to shape it into policy. This accelerates uh, as uh, during the Cold War and the intensification of the Cold War in the 80s during Reagan, because now you have an actual cause to actually target the left, both in the United States and Europe, uh, because there were massive mobilization against US intervention in Latin America with low intensity warfare. There was a, a critique of the United States ramping up its nuclear weapons deployment in Europe. So it was a convenient for right wing uh, in Europe and the United States to use this uh, connection of uh, between uh, the left and uh, you could say the Arab, Muslim and the global South in general. Post 9-11, it became a convenient, uh, if you critique the war on terror in any way, now you are actually part of this cluster. So we get the introduction of Islamofascism first by David Horowitz and others, which gets to be across the Atlantic and many different people pick it up. And now we are seeing Islamo-leftism to try to actually intervene and uh, literally to have a new McCarthy era that is using Islam as a, as a problematized concept and the left as also a problematized concept to blame the left and its alliance 
quote supposedly, even though that many of us who work on Islamophobia know that we have as much Islamophobia on the left, right? Uh, that they, they want in essence to rescue the Muslim subject into enlightenment, but in a different cluster. But it actually it's a convenient target for the right wing and for those who are peddling Islamophobia at a time or utter failure in the contemporary nation state in Europe and also in North America. So Hamza, uh, as uh, Hatim um, mentioned, this term Islamo-leftism really obscures the fact that the left has also been complicit in Islamophobia. And indeed, we have seen that many of these draconian speech restrictions that have been progressively imposed on Muslims in France have not elicited the same type of strong response and critique from the left as now this assault on leftists in universities has. And so can you talk a bit about the context of leftist politics in France and how this really speaks to the incoherence of the term Islamo-leftism in your context? Yes, thank you very much. This is a very good question. Um, you know, uh, as much as I'm doing conferences and uh, and um, seminars with the colleagues from uh, North America, whether it is uh, uh, Canada or the USA, I have always the feeling that Islamophobia in France is a bit different in that respect. That indeed, Islamophobia is mainly a leftist politics in in in, in France, which I think is maybe a little different from Canada or from the USA. Uh, but we have our leftist Islamophobes. Too of course, of course, of course, of course, I can imagine. But as a matter of fact, for instance. Uh, as someone who's been working on the local Islamic uh, mm -hmm. um, communities in France, we find uh, that uh, uh, right-wing politicians are more uh, sympathetic to, uh, to 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 Muslim mosques, for instance, for, to the fact of building mosques in the, in the, in the, in poor suburbs than the left. Which means that there is a very ideological element of the uh, Islamophobic left. Uh, let's say, to the uh, um, leftist politics of uh, Islamophobia. And uh, indeed, this is what's been happening this last few months, is that uh, the uh, anti-separatism, I guess that we will be speaking about that, uh, the uh, anti-separatism uh, anti um, uh, politics, sorry, uh, has not much encountered uh, a stronger um, backfire, let's say, from, from the left. Well, uh, the, um, the anti-Islamo-leftism um, politics, which, again, is not direct towards Muslim, but towards people who are uh, allegedly not enough aggressive towards Muslim, which means the, uh, the, the, the people in the universities, has indeed encountered a lot of uh, backfire. Because it has to do with, some, with the, I think, the French state. So the French state uh, uh, in the last few decades was very linked to the, uh, uh, to the universities. It's not, I think, the same thing in, uh, that it is in Canada or in the USA, because uh, much of French politics is very linked to social sciences, for instance, social politics. Uh, also, the fight against so-called radicalization in France against Muslims. Uh, you have uh, very famous sociologists who were proud of the fight against uh, radicalization in France. So seeing the French state and the French government turning against universities is uh, a tremendous shock. For, for, for French people, for French uh, uh, scholars and uh, French left in general. So I guess that's, uh, um, uh, which is very shocking for the universities. The fact that it's very shocking for the universities in France is not much the, the, uh, the um, demonization, demonization of Islam, but just the fact that they are being accused by the state, which is something very strange for them. 
That's very interesting. I think one thing we have to notice and observe is that the politics around Islamophobia really makes left-right distinctions in their classic classification somewhat obsolete. There is something unique about how formations uh, of Islamophobia develop that um, don't adhere to the obvious left-right uh, division. Um, but you made a very interesting point here about um, the importance and significance of education and the university system in the identity and political culture of France and French society. It seems that there is a lot of investment in that, partly because of this idea of the secular state where they don't take into account in the census racial differences. They don't classify people directly through the government. Uh, according to religion or religious difference. And so they have this idea of a secular citizenship that is created by a common culture of education. So perhaps that's why it, what's at stake is so significant here. But perhaps uh, you and first, first Hatim and then maybe come back to uh, you Hamza about this question. What's interesting about this is that it's not only about Islamo-leftism in terms of sympathy towards Islam and Muslims, but an idea that there's a whole set of social theories and academic approaches and conceptual apparatus that is itself responsible for these unfortunate uh, views of accommodating Muslims um, that needs to be addressed. And it's this idea that much of this is coming from uh, the United States or the North American Academy, where it's importing multiculturalist uh, ideas as represented in certain kinds of scholarship and social theories about race, about colonialism, about post-colonial social theory. I mean, it might be very surprising for people in France to learn that Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault and Etienne Balibar are all these American, you know, uh, scholars. Uh, but perhaps you could tell us what do you think is at stake in this whole broad-based criticism of a form of scholarship? What's involved there, Hatem? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Foucault spent time in Berkeley, so in essence, you could blame him for... Uh, he picked it, up all his bad ideas. Picked up all, all his bad ideas. Maybe he was spending some time on Cafe Milano at the time, and that's where he got his bad ideas. But I think uh, there's a, the big question is about uh, race and where does race fit? Uh, in France, there is no recognition, or at least an attempt to say that... Uh, race does not exist. So what you have is uh, racism without race, uh, allowing the state to continue to have differentiated treatment and while celebrating itself as being the model for overcoming or uh, not having race as a category. So you could say uh, they're blinded by this ideal that, has, that is really is not meeting the reality of what is taking place. More importantly, it's an attempt to really bypass uh, the whole history of colonization because colonization, French colonization, British colonization, uh, Dutch, Belgium, uh, uh, Spanish and Portuguese and so on. There is attempt for Europe in essence to erase uh, 500 years plus of this colonial history that was rooted uh, in multiple genocides rooted in a racial structure and a racial epistemic that is also intertwined with a particular uh, articulation of Christianity the theologically. 
So the Muslim, in essence, holds a particular space in the uh, mind of uh, Eurocentricity. And if you remember, I think your paper that you presented at the conference in Islamophobia, that proto-Islamophobia, uh, which looks at the medieval period, where also these uh, uh, ready set otherization, ready set uh, conceptualization of Islamophobia has just been re-navigated, re-mined and put into the new uh, structure of the modern nation state. I do feel that Islamophobia today, both in relations to the race dimension, as well as the uh, targeting of Muslimness, is an attempt really to reconfigure the Western society anew after the Cold War. Uh, rather than confront what, are, what is taking place in the nation state in France or nation state in Europe broadly, or the United States, Australia, New Zealand, settler colonial states, in essence, finding a new enemy where you actually project all the failures, all the internal dysfunctionalities that have been there, but were at least shielded during the Cold War. And now there is an attempt to uh, really reassert this, uh, this aspect of internal social dynamics within the society. So it's much more of a call for uh, energizing the Western society and you using the Muslims as the drum to really gather uh, this new energy. And that's where the displacement theory comes in, Islamo-leftism comes in. So it's a really a critique or a call that what you need is to express your patriotism, your nationalism, your uh, affinity to the modern nation state against this other that is defiling, that is ruining, that is uh, really undoing our own society. And in this sense, you become the victim rather than being the victimizers of 500 years, not to mention that France is still intervening in the Francophone countries. It still has military, uh, what you call, uh, forces in there. It's still supporting dictators, still sending weapons all over, still participating in NATO and the war interventions. But in this sense, the Muslim subject becomes the boogeyman. So whether if your car is break down, you look for the Muslim rather than actually look at VW or the car company that cheated you on your car. So that's how Muslims become that, what you call boogeyman through or through which you project all the negative within the society. And uh, in fact, Hatem, we know recently a UN report actually documented the atrocities, including likely war crimes uh, that France has been committing in its uh, former colony of Mali in which it now has a military presence. Hamza, uh, can you talk a bit about some of the political <laughs> context surrounding the current assault on post-colonial theory in the French university. We've seen, for instance, the recent uh, Stora report, an official inquiry mm -hmm. that was supposed to be uh, taking place about France's colonial uh, history in Algeria, which has been widely critiqued for really failing to be a genuine reckoning with France's colonial history. Again, let alone um, make any kind of apology or reparations uh, for that history. And so this particular assault on post-colonial or decolonial theory in universities is very much situated within a continuing political context of resistance uh, to acknowledging colonial history. Can you talk a bit about, uh, about that in the French context? Yes, thank you very much. This is a very good question. Um, first, one should say that uh, post-colonial and uh, decolonial, let's, let's just start with post-colonial. Decolonial is even less, but uh, post-colonial theory and the gender 
theory as well uh, are extremely rare in the uh, French academia. So um, mm -hmm. this is something of Don Quixote. You know, they are fighting against uh, these uh, very large, I don't know how you say it in English, the moulin, I don't know, the... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, tilting thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. That actually does not exist in the current state of academia. So um, one should ask what's happening. And it's true that uh, there is the broader political landscape that has uh, a very tremendous uh, effect on uh, academia. But I think that there is something else which is maybe a little more difficult to see for someone who is not in the French academia, uh, which is that uh, the people, the scholars who are now very much uh, um, in support of Macron's government and uh, in support of the whole Islamo-leftism politics that uh, is now being uh, implemented or is about to be implemented in France are, uh, let's say, the, um, I, I don't know, I, I will sound maybe a bit uh, arrogant, I'm sorry, but they are kind of the second division. Of, uh, of the French academia. And there is something of resentment. There is something that's very clear of resentment within the academia against the, uh, uh, the people who actually hold the, uh, um, the major positions in the social sciences uh, fields. I, I think there's something like, we, which again, the people who hold the, uh, um, let's see, the hegemonic the positions in the social sciences fields are not post-colonial theorists and not the colonial, they are much more as French sociologists uh, uh, the Bourdieu kind or something like this. Uh, but uh, still, this is, uh, um, I, I think this is a token for pursuing this kind of uh, um, internal war in, in academia through this political uh, landscape. Of course, the political landscape has a tremendous effect. And uh, as you mentioned, Aziza, we witnessed recently the, uh, the Sora uh, uh, report to to, um, to 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 the uh, to to Macron, which of course the story Benjamin Stora is a serious historian. Of course, uh, one should say this. It's true. Yeah. Uh, he, he may be critical. We can criticize him on a lot of aspects, but still, he's not uh, Tagiev, for instance. It's not the same kind of scholars. It's not at all the same. Class. Yet mm -hmm. this uh, uh, this uh, report, which has been given to Macron, has a very uh, um, explicit and unique uh, um, goal, which is true reconcile but which is not to reconcile france with algeria it's uh, explicitly to reconcile france with itself meaning mm -hmm. france uh, um, right-wing uh, politics uh, current uh, right-wing politics and society let's say it's straight frankly france writing society with uh, its so-called minorities algerian minorities and muslim minorities and so on and this is always what macron what macron is doing it's uh, saying um, you know I i'm implementing this uh, very right-wing policies this uh, yeah, this is a very authoritarian policies towards Muslim, but still, I'm going to do something which is a uh, uh, which which looks nice, or at least a little bit, and and you know it's going to uh, uh, how you say it in English. Uh, the um, uh, it's, it's it's going to uh, make it uh, uh, pass. <laughs> That's very familiar to us in Canada, where we see the uh, ongoing execution of uh, land theft and other kind of policies of subjugation against indigenous peoples alongside these uh, token exercises of, of, recon of recognition and reconciliation. So that's very familiar to us. If I may jump in here, I think what we need to at least come into gra uh, grasp to that both within the French Academy as well as within the political elite in France and other places, there has been at least a mindset that colonization is over and therefore focusing on the impact of colonialism uh, 
uh, is basically is the vic uh, victimization lobby or the victimization cluster that is present, whether it's in the Muslim world or among minorities. And what you need to appreciate, at least from their colonial uh, mindset, is that uh, your conditions would be worse without the favor, the civilizational mission, the uh, uh, infrastructure that we built for you, the hospitals, the roads, the schools. And in essence, you need to get over it and appreciate the fact that right now you're in France, uh, you're in the UK, you're in uh, the Netherlands, and uh, in essence, your, your conditions is a result of your own fault. So not only that there's a complete transformation of colonization as to be a positive, it is also blaming the compounded victimhood that still till today, which tends to be, again, erased totally. So, and as such, this is where you get in the United States taking our country back in the same way that you have in Europe displacement theory and so on, that all these people are taking our country and transforming the social space. We're seeing the hijabs in there, these Muslims that are unappreciative and so on. It actually makes the Western project itself put it as the victim of these minorities that are taking place. So it's flipping the whole 500 years of history on its, on its head. And now you actually can pursue the securitization. You could do surveillance. You could pursue all this because that's, you are the problem. So I always say that uh, Islamicizing the problem, right? Securitize the solution. So you always actually present and move towards securitization and present the white person, right, not in terms of only skin, but epistemologically, as the victim of what is taking place both domestically and globally. And in academia, I tend to say that what we have is embedded intellectuals. These are the intellectuals that reflect the primary scope of state priorities, political elites, and academic elites, and they cannot reconcile themselves with post-colonial theory, and we're not even at the decolonization, but rather trying to continue uh, both sociologically, anthropologically, politically, economically, reorient the variables, but not actually dispensing with the variables. So I think that's what we are facing. Yeah, I'm yeah, so, I, yes. Oh, well, I'm so, go ahead, Hamza, go ahead. Uh, I would like just to add a word because I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I agree with all what has uh, just said Dr. Hatton. Um, I would like just to say a word about this, uh, yes, the scholars, which are, as you say, Dr. Hatton is uh, are the, uh, the organical intellectuals of the state, but I think we should also say that they are the organical intellectuals of uh, the left wing of the state, the left sure. hand of the state. So uh, this is why the, um, the Islamo-leftism, um, the Discourse, which are which is now being uh, discussed in the French politics, is very shocking even to them. Because recently, for instance, I don't know if you heard of this, but uh, recently, for instance, a very famous and very prestigious uh, sociologist, which is Stéphane Beau, uh, mm -hmm. which was a student of uh, of Pierre Bourdieu, uh, which is uh, regarded as someone who is uh, very uh, 
sympathetic to immigration and uh, who has worked extensively about immigration, uh, who was a colleague of uh, Abdel Malik Sayyad, uh, so he's widely seen as someone in the left, which is which is very who is very sympathetic to immigration and to Islam, well, not to Islam actually, but to, to Muslims. Um, and Stefan Bo is um, now um, just wrote a book. Um, Talking about identity politics and how much uh, um, you know the uh, um, the racialization of the debate, uh, the fact that we are speaking about Islamophobia and the racism is, uh, let's say, uh, something which hides the social question and the social. So this is very very classical um, uh, leftist discourse about uh, you know the uh, the differences between uh, racism and uh, and the social question and social classes and class struggles. But still, um, this is very this is very. Uh, um, so, so this is very, very, very strange for, for, for also for them, these people who are actually in favor of the French uh, um, aggressive politics towards Muslim, let's say uh, this kind of left, to be uh, seen as the uh, potential, potential suspects in the, uh, in the current politics. Well, I'm so glad you both uh, brought up history and also connected it to the question of these intellectuals and their, and their position, because it reminds me very much that there's an old colonial consensus in French uh, Academy and Francophone history, even of talking about medieval history, that when they would talk about Islam and Muslims, they would reflect on the contemporary colonial conditions that these are unassimilable people, mm -hmm. you know, because they adhere to this different religious law, and there's no way to really reconcile them into the Western frame. And of course, we saw that playing itself out in Algerian colonial history, where it really wasn't so much just the Arab and the French, or the Algerian and the French, it was Chrétien et Musulman, that was like a category. And that's why you mm -hmm. could assimilate all kinds of people from the Catholic Mediterranean, whether they're from Corsica, or, you know, southern France, or parts of Spain, they could come and be co the colons, you know, in Algeria, because they were Chrétien. And that was what was crucial and important. And so this Republican idea that, oh, well, we don't account for religion, we're all just citizens of France, is something that even during the era of the Republic, they did not uh, uh, employ when they were dealing with their, with their colonies. So the question really, it seems to me, is how much this post-colonial theory is seen as a danger because it argues exactly the opposite of what Hatem was saying that they've tried to reverse and say colonialism is over just like in the United States slavery is over it's long gone now we have to move move forward the post-colonial theory suggests that there are after effects and consequences of the post-colonial situation from colonialism on both the former colonized but also those who did colonize and that seems to be what is completely uh, unimagined uh, and unrecognized in this approach it reminds me so much of this movie cachet <laughs> you know uh, where you have again that kind of white middle class professionals who are the victims right they're sort of think of themselves as the victims of a suppressed history and of history of violence that they want to ignore and they don't want to remember. Yes. So it seems to me that uh, the, the question is, is what role this is playing now politically um, in, in France, since we've talked about uh, the right wing adopting these ideas, these false ideas of history and reversing who's the victim. 
so what use is this being employed uh, by Macron and by, uh, you know, maybe not in this case, the right wing, I mean, but by, by this the centrist policy of the establishment of France? How do you see the politics of this use of history and denial of theories and scholarship that would say that there are legacies of this history that we should be confronting? I think Hamza, you could jump in on the French context for it. Of course, thank you. Thank you so much for this question. Um, yes, I, I agree. Um, I tend to think that this kind of denial uh, should be seen with the uh, psycho psychoanalytical lenses more than anything, I think. Um, especially, I, I would like to um, say something about, yes, the uh, what you said earlier, Adnan, about the uh, um, universities and schools and how it's, uh, they are central to uh, a secular state such as, uh, such as France. Um, I think that, uh, for instance, the fact that uh, we are uh, tending to uh, um, to search for Muslims in these kind of very secular places like schools and universities and trying to, um, yes, to uh, erase Muslim presence from these kind of places, it says a lot about this kind of denial. And the specific denial, I think, uh, here is that actually the sociological uh, integration, which is, of course, it's not assimilation, but the integration has succeeded. And it has succeeded because Muslims are indeed everywhere. This is something that's very, I think, diff difficult to say for, for French politics, politicians, is that indeed, of course, uh, Muslims in France are, uh, let's say, um, still in their, their poor neighborhoods, but there are also Muslims, uh, Muslim doctors, there are Muslims, uh, I don't know, lawyers, there are Muslim students, uh, professors, and so on. And the problem is that more and more you cannot... Um, isolates Muslims from the rest of the society. I think this is the major problem here in France now, is not that only the Muslims are not uh, uh, capable of assimilation, is that in fact, Muslims are in the whole, uh, in, are in all parts of society. I tend to say that more we are going into this, uh, the problem is not the, the Muslim who's bearded, his, it's the Muslim who is not actually. Um, it's the Muslim that you cannot discern or not no longer discern as as much as before from the uh, uh, the ordinary um, um, Frenchman or Frenchwoman. Is that because integration again is not assimilation? And I think this is the very big problem of uh, French uh, um, yes denial and uh, thinking about itself. Well, that's very interesting that you mentioned that you think it's the less visible Muslim that is actually of more concern. That's quite interesting because there's been a lot of study on the periods that I work on in these late medieval period that they wanted to make visible people who were hard to separate. So they had them wear, and as we know this also from later, more 20th century European history, the you know, Jewish wearing the, you know, the gold star or special badge to mark them out when they're in the camps and so on, that this was something that was started in the 13th century in order that the Catholics, would, Latin Catholics, would be able to tell in a place like Spain who were the Jews and the Muslims, right? So that they would make sure that they don't mix because there were lots of laws preventing, you know, marriage and and uh, uh, sexual contact, and so when they became all forcibly converted to uh, Christianity, that's when it suddenly became very dangerous because now they didn't know how to organize society 
so this seems like a very interesting uh, uh, parallel. So it makes me wonder actually about this question of the anti-separatism law. Like what do they really mean at this? It seems like they're very concerned about the idea that, um, you know, that there'll be some kind of social fragmentation if you allow people to maintain their separate identities. Uh, what's your thought about uh, the place of this anti-separatism anti law, the logic behind that? Is that connected with your question about, or your point about the um, real danger being associated with the invisible or less visible uh, Muslim? Yes, thank you very much. I agree. Uh, of course, I, um, I I think that the colonial moment, the post-colonial moment is extremely important. But uh, from now on, I, I tend to think that uh, Islamophobia in France, at least, is much more uh, comparable with the anti-Semitism, the ongoing history of anti-Semitism than colonial racism. Again, the fear is not the Muslim who is not uh, 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 like us, it's the problem of the Muslim who's like us. And there is a token, I think, in the French uh, um, current discourse on, uh, yes, on, on the Muslim community, which for me is very interesting, is that, that they are no longer focusing on Salafism, for instance, but on the Muslim Brotherhood, of course. Mm -hmm. And the Muslim Brotherhood, the problem with the Muslim Brotherhood is that, in fact, the Muslim Brotherhood, whether it is actual, they are actual brothers or just uh, people who are seen to be modernists or reformists uh, from Islam, is that in fact they do participate in, this, in society. So I think this is a, some, something of a, uh, let's say, yes, a very uh, a strong, uh, um, uh, yes, difference between the, the uh, long story of colonial uh, um, racism and the actual Islamophobia now in France. Thank you, Hamza. And uh, for those who are just listening to this podcast and uh, don't have uh, the the visuals, we've just been joined by uh, Professor Salman Syed uh, into this podcast. Uh, so welcome, Salman. Thank you so much for being uh, here to discuss with us the um, particular controversy around the Islamo-leftism in French universities and the broader structural dynamics that this controversy is a manifestation of. Uh, we've just been talking with uh, Hamza about how, from the perspective of the French state, in many ways, the problem isn't the visible Muslim but the quote-unquote invisible Muslim, the Muslim that uh, transcends uh, or transgresses these uh, barriers of identity that are established. Can you talk a bit about what it says about the constitution of the uh, colonial modern society that it depends on these kinds of uh, divisions or segregations of the, of the Muslim, of the Jew, from the normative subject? What does it tell us about the nature of racism, not as um, an irrational phenomenon or something that just emerges spontaneously, but rather something that's a necessary feature for sustaining the colonial modern social structure? Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you um, for this talk and um, through the severities of international date lines and times and things like that. I'm glad to be here. The issue is really twofold. One is that I think it's important for us to um, recognize that, in, that this is a historic moment rather than in something which is essential and transhistorical. So the question I would say is that why is it that in the beginning of the 21st century, the figure of the Muslim starts to play this disruptive role? And I think there are two issues around this. And one of the most striking things is that anywhere in the world you go, 
and when you see a form of uh, nationalist assertiveness, why is it the national assertiveness nearly always um, transcribes itself in opposition to the Muslim presence? They do this um, even when there are no Muslims present. They imagine the Muslim to be present in a way. But you can see this not just in Western Europe or in the United States, but in China with the Uyghurs or in India with Kashmiris, etc. In all of these societies, nationalism asserts itself by uh, trying to regulate, repress, and somehow um, undo Muslimness. And so much so that it's the case that I would argue also in assertive neo-nationalist um, or ultra-nationalist groupings within so-called um, uh, you know, the Islamic Islamosphere itself, where you look around the record of the countries around the Gulf, for example, the OEAs and the Saudi Arabia. Why is it that they feature on this? And the way I would suggest to you is perhaps one of the things that the Muslim figure incarnates at this point is a sense of transnationality. Whatever else a Muslim may be, it is the most acute representation of a transnational body. And every single attempt to reduce Muslimness to the nation is always, always an attempt in terms of an authoritarian nationalism. Now, there are some, you know, you could argue around the gray areas of this, but I think this proposition is really the key one here. That the Muslim represents the transnational, if you will, if you wanted to be uh, provocative, even the cosmopolitan in a very different way. And it is what nationalism, whether it's white nationalism or white revanchism or Indian Hindu, uh, nationalism or Chinese nationalism, it is the Muslim that has to be expelled to make the nation whole. Now, how that's happened is a different story and we can go into that, but I think that's what's happened. And that has really, really important consequences, not only for um, Muslims. I don't think Muslims recognize what this actually means deeply and profoundly enough. If you look at since the 1990s, some of the largest um, victims of genocidal violence in fast, like in Bosnia or in the Rohingya, or a slow one in Kashmir or Palestine or other places, one of the main victims of that kind of ethnic cleansing, genocidal violence, has been Muslims. And I think that's something that we need to, and I think Muslim communities are not aware of, they're aware, but they don't connect it up. But I think it also has consequences for non-Muslims in a way. If you write the, if you're gonna write the story of your nation, by the expulsion of Muslimness, you are going to find these problems uh, multiplying. So in the words, and finally what I'd say is that that means Islamophobia isn't just about media representation. It's not just about not nice to Muslims. It's fundamentally reshaping what it needs to be a nation. Well, thank you so much for uh, those remarks that really open up the question um, beyond France to the broader stakes that are involved um, in our contemporary moment. And I first just want to say that um, uh, Salman Sayed is professor of social theory and decolonial thought at the School of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Leeds in UK. And so one question that I did um, have 
that I thought you would be particularly appropriate to pose it to um, is about this investment or the, the, you know, if you could put it in terms of what's at stake for the nation and, you know, more broadly, these political identities and structures. But this recent um, investigation really uh, highlighted the dangerous role um, not only of Islam and Muslims, but the way in which some underlying social theories and ideas about the nature of society corrupt society and pose a threat to the nation. So I'm wondering if you had any particular thoughts about uh, the importance of race, uh, colonialism, and um, post-colonial studies in this, um, you know, in this recent uh, announcement. I think it's, it's, it's really interesting because in one way, a lot of these announcements are part or an extension of the kind of moral panic on political correctness. And the interesting thing about political correctness is that since the 1980s, that I can recall, that I can think about, there has been a view that somehow political correctness prevents common sense um, expressing itself, yeah? And the, you know you have the complaint that you can't say well, you can't say these things anymore. It's not allowed to say this. And what is interesting about this is not a, again a national phenomenon. It's not just in the United States. Now you could say because of the United States scale um, in the anglophonic world at least, but it is something that's quite broader than that. I think firstly the question about critical race studies, post-colonialism, etc. You have we have to see this in a kind of longer. Um, whole and sort of the genealogy of it, I think, is to do with a panic around political correctness, which occurs at the moment when the right wing is in power but complains that it's not um, getting its way. So, this is the moment where you see the criticism of all of this comes not, it's for people of privilege thinking that they're powerless. And that's a very interesting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The second aspect of this is a kind of old Gramscian one, that if hegemony is um, if hegemony is the relationship between persuasion and coercion, I think what we're seeing is the weakness of the persuasive capacity of these kind of Eurocentric narratives, and therefore to be shored up by coercion. And Part of the coercive effort is legislative intervention in arenas where democratic governments said they would never interfere, for example, academic freedom. And this takes three different parts. There's the academic freedom, which is attacked in relation to countering CVE programs, which have become widespread. So that's one. There is academic freedom, which is being attacked in relation to individualized figures. And there's cases in the University of Bristol right now where um, Zionist groups are demanding the um, expulsion of um, Professor David, David um, for his work. There are other, and, you, and everyone knows cases that we could mention. And then there's a third aspect to this, which is really to do with the curriculum itself. What can or cannot be taught? And sometimes, of course, you know, it reaches absurd kind of uh, proportions. But part of it is to uh, recover those uh, sense that basically the Eurocentricism is now so under attack that the only way that it can be unraveled um, and protected is by state intervention. Um, 
And I think that's where I would see these attacks on critical race theory, on post-colonialism, um, et cetera. Because the right wing has been the Gramscian. They're taking, you know, this is a war of position. And we will use these things to undermine and to prevent these, um, this, uh, the hold of the decolonial possibilities. And I think that's, all of this relates to the crisis of, uh, you know, and also the approach of the post-Western. Salman, you spoke about the figure of the Muslim in contemporary and historical politics as the figure who is the target of genocide. And in the reactions to the um, evidence of the Uyghur genocide, we really see the breakdown that Anand talked about of these traditional political categories of the right and the left, where we now have figures on the right acting as the champions of the Uyghurs, while many on the left are denying the evidence of the persecution and even genocide of the Uyghurs in the name of countering a new imperial uh, US-led effort against China. And so maybe as we come to an end of this conversation, we can talk, um, starting with you, Hatem, about what kind of politics we need to develop beyond these Western-centric colonial categories of the left and the right in order to actually redress histories and presence of colonial violence and ensure a space for Muslim liberation um, in the world? Well, it's a, a big All question. <laughs> but I do think what we need is to reorient and center ourselves. How do we conceive ourselves as part of post-colonial, decolonial framework and what does it mean? Uh, interestingly enough, considerable part of decolonial work has been almost uh, Western epistemology looking at itself and writing about itself how, how post-colonial it is, while itself continued to be as colonial as we speak. So Colonial, uh, post-colonial did not mean the end of colonization. It just moved the troops out, but the colonies are still the place where the uh, Eurocentricity, race, uh, uh, economic, political intervention is, is ongoing. So we can speak about the Francophone zone without speaking about how the Francophone zone makes France the fifth or sixth largest economy. Without the Francophone, France would be 15th or 17th largest economy in the world. That's colonial. So as we are speaking of what we need to do is we need to correctly analyze and correctly place where we are at, both in terms of historical progression and where we are at in relations to epistemology, which means, is it possible for us to reconceive a global South or a Muslim epistemology as we're confronting the world? Because we need to have what you call a 12-step program ourselves. We are trained in a Eurocentric epistemological construct, and we tend to produce the epistemology in our engagement. So meaning how can we extricate that out, which in essence, how can you get outside the box if you are in the, inside the box intellectually, politically, economically, socially, culturally, and religiously? Those are great questions. How to rewrite history because the history that we have in our hands is again, is 
have the footprint of both colonial discourse as well as our global South Muslim elites who were trained by post what you call Eurocentric epistemology to reproduce. So when often somebody says, well, such and such country is corrupt. I say, well, the elite, you train them. So you should know exactly how they actually conducted their corruption. You facilitated their transfer and deposits in your banks. And now you're asking me to try to solve a problem of corruption. Their corruption, the billion, your corruption is in countries. You take uh, Syria, you take Iraq, I'll keep Afghanistan, Congo is for you and we need to continue to speak and center this. So how to resist? That's the big question of how to rethink and reposition ourselves, where you stand and where you look out, both epistemologically, ontologically, and intellectually is a critical piece. And I think those, that's the heavy lifting that we need to do. So instead of Alcoholics Anonymous, we need Eurocentrics Anonymous, well, much more is, powerful epistemological and ontological drive. I think the first step is to refuse to ask colonial questions. Because accepting mm -hmm. to answer yes. colonial questions, you will produce colonial epistemology. Mm -hmm. And we continue to actually entertain that because Macron has a question, we need to answer his question. He needs to go to a 12-step program begin with, let alone for us to answer his question. <laughs> so refuse to, to actually begin to answer colonial questions. Hamza. Uh, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful uh, conversation and remarks. Uh, I agree uh, with uh, what said uh, what just said Dr. Hatem. Um, I would like to say maybe three very uh, brief things. Uh, first is I think maybe we need more uh, understanding between Muslims in the so-called north and Muslims in the south. Uh, as I said maybe earlier, I'm speaking from Morocco, and uh, and this is uh, very strange for me as someone who's usually living in France uh, and. Uh, um, um, to see how much people here in Morocco uh, are in the same time, of course, criticizing France for uh, Charlie Hebdo and its very hurtful remarks about uh, the, the prophet uh, and, uh, and also about uh, the, the statements Macron did about, uh, yes, general Islam being in crisis. And in the same time, the same people here in Morocco do not understand what means to be Muslims in France and uh, why, even why these people in France uh, who came from Morocco from Algeria, from Tunisia, decades ago, are still Muslims. <laughs> uh, this is a very something that's uh, uh, very striking to me to see that we lack understanding. Uh, very, um, I think we lack sociological understanding and also theological understanding from wh why wh what it is to be Muslim in the north and what it means for Islam. Um, a second thing, maybe, um, and which was said earlier by uh, Dr. Salman Sayed, which is, uh, of course, I think we should be a little more, um, yes. Uh, um, uh, knowing a little more the recent history of Muslim uh, uh, minorities in, in the world. It's not to say again this general discourse about the general plot against Muslims in the world, but still, as said, as uh, Dr. Salman Sayed said earlier, and also Dr. Hatim and also Adnan, and as you said, you all said this, that the, the Muslims represent something for these secular states, whether it is China, whether it is India, whether it is the Burma, whether it is uh, uh, even Muslim, so-called Muslim majorities countries, such as Syria and so on, and Egypt, of course, and so on. So I think one should be a little more aware about this, uh, yes, this, uh, what it means for the states to, um, uh, what it is about Islam that makes uh, uh, the state so uh, aggressive, maybe. <laughs> and uh, maybe a third thing, just uh, very quick 
and maybe more practical is that in France we ha do have a, a, a very tragical but and very weak also but we do have a, a, an advantage compared to uh, the Uyghur people in in China or uh, the Burmese of course uh, we, the first advantage is that we are not facing at all the same uh, uh, yes uh, tragical uh, events that, and genocide that uh, the people in China are facing but still um, uh, the Chinese government does not care what, about what you can say about it uh, uh, in the world. Uh, Macron do care. Uh, the French government do care. So, in, uh, of course, in France, we are all very we are fearful of what can uh, arrive to us uh, as Muslims, as scholars, as everything in France. But still, uh, I think that international solidarity and saying again and again exactly how uh, like this program and uh, maybe in other ways that French is engaging in very authoritarian and aggressive politics towards its Muslims, towards its universities, it's, it may have some effects. It may, it may be helpful, I think. Uh, there are a lot of uh, um, signatures who are being uh, asked from uh, uh, international scholars uh, in help to the Muslim communities in France. And I think indeed that it can, um, yeah, it can have some effects in uh, not, of course, not in uh, in. Uh, in uh, stopping the government, the French government, but still to, uh, let's say, uh, debate a, a little more, to have maybe a little more space to debate. I'm wondering also, um, Salman, if you have any further reflections and didactic uh, suggestions here of, of both analysis and remedy in response um, to Aziza's question. I'll follow on with the comments that Hansa and Hatem have made very well. The first thing is a word of caution. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, I agree with everything that Hamza says, but I also think that we need to understand the seriousness of what's happening in, uh, in France compared, and I don't mean that you don't, I think it's really important that the audience understands this. If what happens in France is allowed to carry on and succeed, the repercussions are gonna be far worse in many ways than what's happened in China, India, or uh, Myanmar simply because if they can be if it can be done in a sort of a liberal democratic society then you know there's a kind of evocative phrase that keeps coming to me edward Said's um, um book that he wrote with them um, darwish i think after the last sky and in a sense then really question becomes then where is it for muslims to be muslims in that sense the other thing i think the other danger about france is that um and, and austria is already included in this kind of thing when these countries enact really what are problematically draconian um, legislation, regulation, etc., there is less ability to critique that because it is considered to be, well, this, they wouldn't do anything like that kind of motto. Because we have behind that almost 200 years of propaganda that these are democratic and liberal societies and democratic liberal societies cannot be by their very nature uh, repressive. This makes a mockery of the history, back to the point of man you asked why they don't want the history of colonialism to be taught, because everyone on this call, and I think many of your listeners know that liberal totally compatible with racism and colonialism. We recognize these dangers the final point I would make, and it goes back to what Aziza was saying about, I think it was Aziza, about the left and the right around. I mean, I've written um, left and right, of course, emerges with the French Revolution. 
I mean, it's actually descriptive images from the French Revolution, in the sense that left and right since that has, haven't made the same sense. And in relation to the Muslim question, it is very, very difficult to read from the left or the right anything that you could read anywhere else. And I mean, for, for example, in Bosnia, you have of intervention to save the Bosnians because it was considered pro-American. I mean, these are all kinds of twisted that you can find in so many different occasions. So in a sense, even that kind of political grammar, that international grammar that has existed for the last 200 years, breaks down in the face of the Muslim question. And the final thing that I would want to say with this is that we need to understand that this asking of the Muslim question displaces epistemology, culture. It is a very deep displacement. And I think um, Hakan sort of hinted a little bit about how, you know, how even the decolonial has a challenge when it comes to the Islamic case. Um, that we can't simply insert the Muslim as the, uh, another iteration of the wretched of the earth for a variety of reasons. Um, and we face a challenge in if we're going to think that coloniality and the colonialism is global, then we need to think about the decolonial and global. And what does it mean to decolonize? So to give you one very good, uh, simple example, if you started with 1492 as the year zero of the decolonial moment, 1492, the fall of Granada and the um, discover, conquest of the Americas seems to be a neat way of thinking these things together. But 1492, the reason why, for example, there's ethnic cleansing of Muslims and Jews is because there's a fear that Muslim armies from across the, um, um, uh, you know, across the Straits of Gibraltar will come and liberate these populations again. And that's a very, very different logic. So I think part of it is this, this kind of very kind of regular um, sense of decoloniality, which is, oh, we are against all forms of violence and things, which is really good. But in the end, you also have to understand that um, the right of resistance may also require a degree of violence. And this is where I think even the sort of, you know, it's important to remember what tested relationship with the Islamic state in many ways, or at least a complicated relationship, perhaps in other countries. Decolonization is always a violent phenomenon. And that's where I think the decoloniality cannot divorce, should not divorce itself from decolonization. Um, and I think we need to be mindful of that. But ultimately what we're talking about is violence and the right of resistance cannot be simply seen as violence as well. Thank you. Um, this has been such a tremendous and fruitful conversation that has gone in many interesting uh, directions and through many levels that I think need to be excavated further, hopefully in the near future. So I want to thank you and hopefully have you, many of you back on again to elaborate some of these ideas in further detail. Uh, Hatim, where can people find and follow your work? Well, they could go to my website, hatimbazin.org, and also at UC Berkeley, uh, irdp.org, uh, we have. And then for sure to access our journal, Islamophobia Studies Journal, um, a biannual journal published through Pluto Press, which is right now is open access. So definitely all those three areas, you could access uh, the material. Excellent. And uh, Hamza, where can people find you and follow your work? 
Um, first, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Uh, yes, uh, my work can be found on uh, Academia, in my page uh, Hamza Samidi, um, also in my institutional page in the Centre Maurice Alvax at Ecole Normale Supérieure. And um, I'll just, I just, I just had the uh, great honor by Dr. Hatem to publish an actual an article in the Islamophobia Studies Journal uh, with Aisha Bunagab about, uh, um, yes, the uh, ongoing situation in France, but somehow everything changed again because it was about uh, the war against uh, the radicalization but it has changed again so <laughs> one should uh, yeah be very I'm afraid your your work will have to be pretty continuous yes Salman where can people find and follow you um, I think uh, uh, two things. One is the Critical Muslim Studies Project, which has different kinds of iterations. For example, there's a, a podcast network, pod, uh, network reorient podcast series. There is also the journal that Hartman um, talked about before, Reorient, the Journal of Critical Muslim Studies. Um, and, you know, we're on, I think, on Facebook and all of these sort of platforms and things, but mainly in people's, the people of good faith's hearts. That's where we, our work should really be. That's what it should be working towards that. Hatem, do you want to say anything about ISRA? Oh, we just uh, are in, oh. we just, just got approved yesterday for the launch of the International Islamophobia Studies and Research Association. So more information will be coming. So we'll have an, an actual academic association. Uh, and uh, I think the announcement will go out very soon. And the launch will be in the uh, upcoming virtually conference uh, in April. Well, that's wonderful news. You heard it here first, listeners. Yes. There's an Isra <laughs> and hopefully a Mirage, uh, you know, ahead. So that's fantastic. We could Thank only you. speak of the earthly dimension. Yeah, only yeah. the <laughs> heavenly dimension. <laughs> and while we will not promise you through the earthly to anything further, that you may draw your own conclusions. Indeed. 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 The first okay. international conference on critical Muslim studies, which was going to be held last year, but has been postponed for inevitable reasons for 2022, around about, I think, May 2022. Um, so please watch that and be involved in that, because it's also important for us to um, gather and build networks and solidarities and learn from each other and from different experiences. It's one thing to look out for on your calendar. Be there or be square. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we hope to be there. Thank you again so much. We appreciate it. And listeners, look for future episodes of the Majlis coming up and hopefully with some of these guests back again to talk about these important and enduring issues. Thank you for joining us in the Majlis, a podcast by MSGP. Muslim Society's Global Perspectives, or MSGP, is an initiative at Queen's University dedicated to connecting the complex history of Islamic societies with the contemporary world. You can connect, learn more, and support us by checking out our website, www.queensu.ca msgp, and stay up to date with our events by following us on Twitter, at msgpqu, and on our Facebook, msgpqu. You can also follow our YouTube channel, The Mejlis.